Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a news story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone. Before we get started today, I want to make a quick announcement. We now have a Patreon page. We have three tiers available. For $1 a month, you can become a cat-friendly patron and you'll receive a patron shout-out on an episode and our social media pages. The middle $3 tier, Cat Person, gives you the benefits of the $1 tier plus early ad-free access to main episodes and at least one exclusive mini-episode per month. Finally, the $5 tier, Crazy Cat Person, gives you all the perks of the $1 and $3 levels, plus at least one exclusive bonus episode per month, and a thank you card with a True Crime Cat Lawyer sticker pack. If you're interested in supporting our podcast on Patreon, please check out the link in our show notes. So with that out of the way, for episode 17, we're heading back to Idaho for a super interesting case that has a little bit of everything, familial DNA and genealogy, wrongful conviction, and a cold case that went unsolved for 23 years. Get ready because the case of Angie Dodge is going to keep you on the edge of your seat. Idaho Falls is a predominantly Mormon town of approximately 65,000 people. Most people say it's a very safe place to live. But if that were true, I wouldn't be telling you today's story. On the morning of June 13, 1996, Angie Dodge failed to show up for her job at a local beauty supply store. Her coworker went to her apartment to check on her and found the door unlocked. There was no sign of forced entry, but there were obvious signs of a struggle. 18-year-old Angie Dodge was lying on her back on the floor next to her mattress. Her sweatpants were pulled down to her knees, and her shirt was lifted up to reveal a cut on her breast, and there was a significant amount of blood on the walls. 
A call to 911 was placed, and police were sent to a suspicious death scene at Angie's apartment. Angie had been stabbed 14 times, and police found semen on her body, indicating she was also raped. Detectives would later describe the crime scene as, quote, probably the worst one they'd seen, end quote. It was graphic and violent with a lot of blood. Who would commit such a heinous act against this young woman? Angie Dodge had just graduated from high school in June 1996. She was thinking about going to college at Idaho State University. As the youngest of four kids and the only girl, she was the beloved baby girl of the family. Angie moved into her apartment just three weeks before her murder after a disagreement with her mother over a quote-unquote house rule. Thankfully, Angie and her mother made amends the night prior to her murder and all was forgiven between them. Angie had her whole life ahead of her until someone tragically stole that away from both her and her family. Police were able to determine the semen left on Angie's body was from a single DNA profile. They collected DNA samples from dozens of local men and interviewed everyone in Angie's life, including a large group of friends that hung out with Angie and referred to themselves as the River Rats. The Idaho Falls Police Department was overwhelmed with the investigation. They were a small department, and the lead detectives had very little experience with homicide, but they were expected to solve this case for the community's sake. Violent crimes like Angie's were extremely rare for Idaho Falls, and the community was justifiably shaken. At the six-month mark, investigators had no answers. Angie's case was beginning to go cold, which is not what her family, detectives, or the community wanted to hear. Then, in January 1997, a man named Ben Hobbs was arrested in Nevada on rape charges police thought he could be a very strong suspect. Not only were the details of the rape very similar to Angie's, Hobbs was a member of the River Rats and was close to Angie. He was even a member of the funeral party, carrying flowers alongside her casket. Investigators went to Nevada to interview Hobbs. He denied any involvement in Angie's rape and murder, but police obtained a DNA sample from him. While they waited for the results, they began interviewing Hobbs' circle of friends, which led them to Christopher Tapp. Tapp was a high school dropout and a member of the River Rats. Detectives were hoping Tapp would implicate Hobbs in the crime. Unfortunately, the DNA test cleared Hobbs, so police put more pressure on Tapp. They spent over 60 hours interrogating Tapp and administered seven polygraph tests, despite learning at some point that Tapp's DNA also wasn't a match to the sample found at the crime scene. Tapp's story changed several times during his interrogations, primarily because the police fed the vast majority of the crime's details to him. The police lied to Tapp and told him that Hobbs had confessed to murdering Angie and implicated Tapp in the murder. Tapp adamantly denied any involvement in Angie's rape and murder. One of the lead detectives on the case was a former school resource officer who had a history with Tapp. There was trust between them. This detective assured Tapp that if he cooperated and admitted to being at the crime scene, he'd go free. Tapp confessed to holding Angie down while Hobbs attacked her, and police decided some mysterious third man must have attacked and raped Angie. 
Despite the lack of DNA or any other physical evidence linking Tapp to the crime, a major gap in police's case, Tapp was charged with aiding in the rape and murder of Angie Dodge. Prior to his trial, Tapp's defense attorney attempted to suppress his confession. Unfortunately, this was unsuccessful and the vast majority of Tapp's statements would be used against him at trial. Tapp's confession didn't detail the attack, the crime scene, or anything else that wasn't already known to investigators. The prosecution centered their case around the common misconception at the time that innocent people don't confess to crimes they didn't commit. Angie's mother, Carol Dodge, attended every day of the trial. The jury watched the interrogation videos of Tapp and heard his confession. The prosecution offered a witness named Destiny Osborne, who claimed she was at a party a few days after Angie's murder and overheard Hobbs and Tapp admit to killing Angie. Despite Osborne acknowledging that she was high at the time, she claimed that Hobbs killed Angie because she owed him money for drugs. I found nothing to corroborate these claims or any evidence that Angie ever used drugs. Tapp did not testify at his trial. His defense attorney offered several witnesses who provided Tapp with an alibi. He spent the night with a random woman. Tapp's girlfriend actually caught them together the next day. In spite of all of this, the jury deliberated for 13 hours before finding Tapp guilty based on the accomplice theory. At his sentencing hearing, the judge said, quote, I can say without equivocation that had Mr. Tapp not confessed, there would have been no conviction in this case, end quote. The judge sentenced Tapp to 30 years to life, but there was still the unsolved question of who left the DNA. Carol Dodge was persistent. She wasn't about to let the Idaho Falls Police Department forget about her daughter's case. She knew that her daughter's rapist and killer was still free. Carol was constantly at the police station trying to get updates on the status of Angie's case. In October 2002, Tapp filed his first petition for post-conviction relief, which was dismissed. Later, in 2003, a special task force was created to continue investigating Angie's case, but there weren't really any suspects, clues, or leads to go off of. But Carol was a, quote, fierce force of nature, end quote. She would not give up. Five years after the task force didn't come up with any answers, Carol went back to Tapp's interrogation tapes and began studying them. It quickly became clear to her that Tapp wasn't at the crime scene based on the discrepancies in his interview answers. Carol contacted Tapp's appellate attorney to let him know that she thought Tapp was innocent, which isn't something that happens very often. It was at this point that Carol became a strong advocate for Tapp's innocence and began pushing for his release. The Idaho Innocence Project and Judges for Justice organizations both got involved in Tapp's case. Judges reviewing Tapp's case quickly discovered that coercive tactics were used during Tapp's interrogations and polygraph examinations. One of the polygraph examiners actually threatened Tapp with the gas chamber, which is incredibly coercive given Tapp's limited education and age. A second petition for post-conviction relief was filed in March of 2009, but again, the petition was dismissed. 
Tapp told Carroll and his attorneys that he actually second-guessed his own memories because of the police's interrogation tactics. But two of the interviewing detectives claimed they never provided any details of the crime to Tapp and swear that he offered up that information on his own. Carroll and Tapp's appellate team continued to push for his release. In 2012, touch DNA was sent to the lab, and in 2013, Angie's case was submitted to the FBI cold case unit for review. A third petition for post-conviction relief was filed in September 2012, but unfortunately, it was later dismissed. The appellate attorneys were constantly fighting for DNA testing to be completed so the real perpetrator of Angie's rape and murder could be found and Tap could be exonerated. As science and DNA advanced, Carol wanted investigators to use familial DNA to find Angie's killer. The only problem was, Idaho doesn't allow familial searches in criminal databases. That's when investigators ran their DNA sample through the public databases and got a hit. Investigators obtained a warrant for Ancestry.com in 2014 to force them to reveal the identity of the man who put his DNA profile into their database. The profile had a strong overlap, 34 out of 35 matching markers, but it wasn't a perfect match to the DNA at the crime scene. Police learned the profile belonged to Michael Usury, who had submitted his DNA sample to the Sorensen Molecular Genealogy Foundation, which was later acquired by Ancestry. They were able to track down his son, Michael Usury Jr., who was a filmmaker. He actually made a movie called Murderbilia, which involved the brutal murder of a young woman. This combined with the fact that Usury Jr. was in Idaho Falls around the time of Angie's murder in 1996 made police incredibly suspicious of him, and they obviously wanted to interview him as soon as possible. In January 2015, Usury Jr. was officially cleared in the case after he was notified that his DNA was not a match for the sample found on Angie's body. Usury Jr. mapped out his family tree for Carol so she would be able to continue the investigation. In May of 2015, Tapp's team of attorneys filed a fourth petition for post-conviction relief on two issues. One, if prosecutors should have turned over the interrogation videos and polygraph tests. And two, if new evidence could be presented to show that Tapp was coerced into confessing. A special prosecutor reviewed Tapp's conviction and the other evidence in Angie's case in 2016. He found no new clear and convincing evidence existed to overturn Tapp's conviction. However, there were concerns raised about Tapp's involvement in the crime and his confession. On March 22, 2017, Tapp was released from jail after he agreed to a second-degree murder conviction for time served, and the rape charges were dropped completely. Despite the rape charges no longer being valid and the lack of DNA evidence or any other evidence supporting his involvement in Angie's rape and murder, Tapp remained a murderer in the eyes of the community. He wasn't completely exonerated, and he wanted to clear his name once and for all. New detectives took over the case in October 2017. They began re-interviewing witnesses, reviewing the evidence, and bringing a fresh perspective on this incredibly cold case. Destiny Osborne, who testified for the prosecution in Tapp's trial, recanted her prior testimony. She told the new detectives that she didn't know Ben Hobbs, 
and police had threatened to arrest her on drug charges. Thankfully, Parabon Nanolabs also got involved in the case in 2017 and released a snapshot based on the DNA profile. Detectives and Carol knew that Angie's rapist and murderer was a member of the Usury bloodline. They were determined to solve the case. A new player entered the investigation in 2018, and she would prove to be the key to cracking Angie's case wide open. Cece Moore, a genetic genealogy expert, was contacted by Carol Dodge, who was desperate to track the family lineage of the Usury family to her daughter's killer. Surprisingly, police had preserved the evidence fairly well. Cece was able to outline three family trees from the partial DNA matches and narrowed down the list to a single couple, most likely the perpetrator's great-grandparents. Cece was able to provide a list of matches, six suspects for detectives to interview and collect DNA samples from, so police set out to do just that. But at the end of the DNA testing results, all six suspects were ruled out. Cece was beyond confused and heartbroken to think that she let Carol down. She went back to the family trees and found out about a seventh man. This man was missed the first time around because he had taken the last name of his stepfather rather than the usury surname. In February 2019, six to eight Idaho Falls detectives traveled to Caldwell, Idaho in a covert attempt to obtain the DNA of their suspect, Brian Drips Sr. Drips lived in a fairly remote rural area, which made it hard for investigators to conduct surveillance. Fortunately, they were able to have local police conduct a routine traffic stop and obtain Drips' DNA from blowing into a breathalyzer, and they grabbed a discarded cigarette butt that Drips had thrown out of his truck. At the time of Angie's murder, Drips was living on the same street, and he was briefly questioned on the day of her murder back in 1996. He denied knowing anything about the crime, but left town several weeks later, which police didn't bother to notice because they'd already set their sights on tap. On May 9, 2019, Idaho Falls detectives confirmed Drips' DNA was a match for the sample found on Angie's body. They arrested Drips and brought him to the Caldwell police station. At the time of Angie's murder, Drips was 30 years old, going through a divorce, with a few misdemeanors but no felonies on his record. Detectives interrogated Drips for five and a half hours. He denied any involvement or knowledge of the crime. He took a smoke break, and when he returned, he was ready to tell investigators everything. Drips claimed that he entered Angie's apartment with a knife intending to rape her. He held the knife to her throat and told police it must have cut her on the throat during the assault. Drips was adamant that he only intended to commit rape. Angie's murder was a, quote, accident, end quote. A press conference was held on May 16, 2019. Detectives informed the public that Drips had confessed to the rape and murder of Angie Dodge. They also confirmed Drips had acted alone. There were no accomplices to his crimes. Tapp was fully exonerated after Drips' arrest. According to some of my sources, Tapp's case is the first exoneration as a result of genealogical DNA testing. After his exoneration, during which Carol was present, Tapp told reporters, quote, I hope nobody forgets Angie Dodge, end quote. 
Despite everything that he and Carol had been through, they were supportive of one another and were both incredibly happy to see Angie's true rapist and killer brought to justice. In December 2019, Tapp filed a lawsuit seeking damages from the city of Idaho Falls for his wrongful conviction. The city has filed a motion to dismiss the case. However, I wasn't able to find any further information on whether or not the motion was granted. Drips pled guilty to the rape and murder of Angie Dodge earlier this year. He is scheduled to be sentenced on April 27, 2021. Prosecutors are recommending Drips serve life in prison with parole eligibility after he serves at least 20 years. I will continue following this case and provide an update when Drips has been sentenced. In a lot of investigations, the resolution of the case is brought about by the numerous amount of hours detectives pour into it. While there were tenacious detectives investigating the case in 2017, ultimately this case was solved due to the tireless pursuit of justice for Angie by her mother, Carol. As one detective stated, quote, this case begins and ends with Carol Dodge, end quote. If it weren't for her constant efforts in keeping Angie's case alive in police's minds, the media, anywhere she could really, this case might not have been solved. Carol and Angie's brother Brent started a nonprofit organization called Five for Hope, which raises money for underfunded cold case investigations and police departments. Their goal is to provide more monetary resources for investigators to use in solving crimes. I'll provide the link to their GoFundMe page in the show notes. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. As I mentioned at the beginning of this show, we recently started our Patreon page. If you would like to become a patron of this show, you can head over to patreon.com slash truecrimecatlawyer. You can also find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.